Hello, my name is Roberto. In this video, I want to show you the first part of my conversation with Professor Emeritus James Lamiel. In this interview, I talked to him about his book from 2019, which is titled Psychology's Misuse of Statistics and Persistent Dismissal of Its Critics. So, in this interview, Professor Lamiel first introduces himself and his motivations to write this book, and following that, he also then talks about statisticism, which is the main topic of his book. And then after that, Professor Lamiel will discuss what are the impacts of statisticism on modern psychology, both impact that has already had, but honestly also the impact that it still has on modern psychology. So if you also don't know what this book is about, uh, you can check out my book commentary video, which I have already posted and you can find the link in the description. But anyway, I really hope that you enjoy this first part of the conversation. So here it is. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I was born in 1950 in Northeast Ohio, uh, a city called Canton, which is a little south of Cleveland. I went to uh, undergraduate school at Bowling Green State University, which is in Northwest Ohio. Um, and then from there, I went directly to graduate school, PhD work in psychology at Kansas State University mm -hmm. in Manhattan, Kansas. <laughs> and uh, I was at Kansas State from 1972 until 1976 when I got my PhD and then I took my first academic position at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I was there from 1976 until 1982. Um, my wife and I have two children. They were both born uh, in Urbana. They're now in their 40s, of course. Uh, in 1982, I had the opportunity to relocate to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And so I went to Georgetown in 1982 and I officially retired from Georgetown in 2017. And as I mentioned briefly to you along the way, I did three sabbaticals in all in Germany um, because the, by this time, my interest in William Stern had awakened. Um, so I was uh, in Heidelberg in 1990 and I was then in Leipzig for, uh, uh, for six months again in 1998. And I was then in Hamburg for, uh, in 2004. And as you may know, Hamburg is where Stern held his uh, last academic appointment and from where he fled Germany in 1934, staying briefly in the Netherlands, then he went on to, to the United States. Um, so that's that's it in a nutshell yeah, yeah. Oh, and the one question about this all of these three sabbaticals these locations that you mentioned were 100 percent decided by the work that you had to do or was it like did you have an option of where to go or how how was this i i had an option of where to go to undergraduate school limited okay. mainly by funds i i come from a family that was certainly not poor but not we were of modest income. I'm, I'm one of nine okay. <laughs> children. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> where, so where, my, where on the 
older mm -hmm. are you? <laughs> I'm fourth. I have three older sisters okay. and five younger sisters. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So big, <laughs> big family. My father made a modest income. And so, as I said, we weren't poor, but he had to watch, watch the funds. And so when I went, came time for me to go to college, I couldn't like just pick any school that I wanted to go to. I had to pay attention to how much it was going to cost. And as an Ohio resident, state schools in Ohio are relatively cheap uh, compared to private schools. And so I, I, I elected to go to a state school in Ohio. Um, I got into, got admitted to a couple of programs uh, um, for graduate study. And I chose to go to Kansas State because I had an opportunity there to do my studies in personality psychology. And that was the field that I thought I was interested in at the time. Um, when I finished at Kansas State and went on the job market, I also had a couple of different opportunities and chose uh, at the University of Illinois. It just seemed like the best place for me to go at that time. Um, but um, it was shortly after I reached Illinois that my thinking about statistics and the way in which personality psychologists were using statistics uh, became to be reoriented. Yeah. And I began to be very critical of that and started writing uh, a, a piece, a conceptual piece that eventually was published in the American Psychologist, but it was a conceptual piece, not an empirical piece. And University of Illinois was not very hospitable to, hospitable to conceptual work. Huh, yeah. and, and so when I had the opportunity to go to Georgetown, that was being yeah. led at that time by a person who, who was very influential. And he was also very uh, uh, hospitable to conceptual work. He appreciated theoretical, philosophical, historical work. And so Georgetown ended up being a perfect place uh, for me. And that's, that's where I stayed for the remainder of my year, of my career over 30 years. Yeah, which I mean, what I found interesting is that the object of what we want to discuss right now, which is uh, the book that, that you published in 2019, um yes. you actually have a chapter where you explain this this kind of developments right the second chapter where you say okay you introduce it as an autobiographical chapter uh, mostly right. uh and you explain this kind of uh process because as i was reading him okay i got the idea that it was a, a topic that that you came across and the critical thinking kind of was sparked in you and that led to Two were basically <laughs> the whole story of your career, right? I think, or most. Yes, really, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Okay, yeah. Well, so now that you, I think you, you quite well describe uh, a lot uh, about who you are as, as a person, but then uh, I, I ask you in, in the list that I sent you before, a, a simple question then, how, what is the exact definition of your profession? I mean, I, I know I can already announce that as, as you also hinted that you are now retired, but to define you professionally, what's the correct uh, terminology for that? Well, I, I'm an academic psychologist. I'm not a practicing clinician. I have no clinical training, never did any clinical work at all. So I'm an academic psychologist, psychologist with interests in uh, um, theoretical and philosophical psychology. 
and the history of psychology. So that's as precise as I can be. And then, um, as you may know, the American Psychological Association is broken down into divisions. There are over 50 divisions in the AP. I think it's up to 60 right now, mm -hmm. somewhere near there. And people are often identified in terms of what divisions of the field they belong to. I belong to a division of general psychology, okay. theoretical and philosophical psychology, and history of psychology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've been president uh, in the past of both theoretical and philosophical psych division and of the history of psychology division. So those have been my main professional affiliations for a long time. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Now uh, the big the big question that that uh, follow up uh, let's say this this starting point for me was okay uh, if I put myself let's say my experience as psychologist in contrast to to what I I already know from you it was okay a historian and philosopher of psychology. Uh, from how I was educated as a, as a psychologist, then it becomes like, okay, so I, of course I am not a historian. I don't, uh, I, I was taught a bit about the history, of course, of psychology and about the philosophy, but you never go that deep, at least in, in the type of education that I follow. And I, I have followed a couple of programs, but you realize that that's not the core, maybe at the beginning only, right? Uh, that's right. So the, the questions that I had was, okay, I want to have a clear idea of how, how is it to be a historian and philosopher of psychology. So the question was, how was kind of like a typical uh, working day for you? What did you work with? What were you doing? How did it look? Yeah, um, well, of course, being affiliated with a university, my, one of my main responsibilities was teaching. Yeah. So I taught courses. My specialty in graduate school was um, personality psychology. And so when I went to Illinois, I was expected to teach courses in personality. Yeah. And so that's what I was doing. Um, but when I started to have doubts about this, these statistics, as, as I described in chapter two that you read, I, I, I came to realize that the important work for me to be doing was not more empirical work using methods that I had become to doubt, but was rather to try to, to conceptualize this problem and publish on it so as to make the point to other psychologists who would then hopefully come to appreciate it. And so I essentially dropped the empirical work, started doing the conceptual work, and back at that time, the American Psychologist, which was then and still is the most read journal in psychology, American psychology at least, um, was publishing conceptual articles. And so I thought that would be appropriate outlet for this, for this kind of work. Along the way, uh, there was a, a, a second European conference on personality was held in Bielefeld in what was then West Germany in 1984. I went to Bielefeld and participated in the conference and in fact gave a, a paper that was based on my American psychologist paper. And one of the attendees at that conference, a Lothar Lauchs, who is a, a German psychologist, he's retired now, but still as emeritus at the University of Bamberg in, in, the, in the south of Germany. 
Um, and in the meantime, we became very close colleagues and friends. But at the time in Bielefeld, I was just meeting him and he had said to me, have you ever heard of William Stern? <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, he was the IQ guy. <laughs> um, Everybody knows uh, who needs it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and and Lauchs was very patient with me and explained, yeah, he was Lamiel, but you know, if you read William Stern, you will see that he did a lot more than that. And that's what kind of sparked my interest in, in yeah. reading William Stern because Lauchs was telling me that what I was saying was was compatible in many ways with things that Stern had believed and written. And so that's when the interest in Stern became alive. And the further I went with that, the more my interest expanded beyond research methods and statistics and into the philosophy of psychology and indeed the history of psychology. And of course, learning German and being able to come to read German opened up a lot of historical material to me. Uh, Wundt and, and Bindelband and, and other that I would never have been able to, to examine except for the German. So the, the, the interest in the philosophy and, and, and history of psychology kind of grew as my work in, in studying German grew. Well, uh, now precisely, I, I would like to kind of announce and, and jump into the the main topic, as I said, uh, the book. Uh, I would like to just kind of repeat the title of the book because this is what, of course, this is the first thing I saw when I was looking around, looking for some information. Uh, yeah. And the title was, okay, or is, uh, Psychology's Misuse of Statistics and Persistent Dismissal of Its Critics, right? So right. at the beginning, I think I told you, I was looking for statistical textbooks. I was trying to, you know, understand what I thought I already knew and to keep myself refreshed. I mean, I don't think this is, or has ever been one of my strengths, even though I, I have put uh, a lot of effort into it, but I was looking for this. Uh, so I saw, I read the first part of the title and I was like, okay, this is, I know this is a topic in psychology. I think most people recognize that, right? That the statistics and the way in social sciences that it is used or misused, as, as the title says, it's a yeah. thing, right? That it has to be discussed usually. Uh, but then you, the second part of, your, of this title is, is very, very, very clear. And it's very, very, very descriptive of what the book is about, which is the persistent dismissal of its critics. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, okay, so this is not a statistical textbook this is something else no no <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, you know i i, I just uh, went through it and, and and that pretty much uh led of course to to this request for this interview and yeah and just to to start digging in, into what's in it i mean we already discussed it i think there are there is a big story about psychology as a science or the struggle to be stay uh, remain science uh, and there is also I think this story about individuals which for me is very interesting you know you get to know you and the fact that you through the help of others got to know people psychologists who basically founded uh, uh, the the early version of, of this science or of this practice uh, however you want to define it and and all of these were, you know, through just connections of people working, people trying to understand, pick up the ideas of somebody else. And that has led us basically to, 
to to the day of today, right? Uh, so for yeah. me, it's very interesting that in in this kind of large story of of what the field is trying to become or is uh, in, in whatever state it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's here for a reason, and it, it happened for because of the acts of many individuals, which might have been more right or wrong, depending on on, on what they experienced or saw or yeah. understood. But I think there is a lot to say, right? So uh, I, I thought the book was very, very concrete and, and well stepped into how you introduce all of these topics, uh, because, like I said, what you have just mentioned. It, it, everything all of this is in the book <laughs> so, so yeah. it's quite interesting um well, so first uh yeah. i i will just want you to to recapitulate a bit what's in the uh, preface of the book i think and also in the foreword of the editor i, I believe of the series and i think it's your colleague uh or ex-colleague i will say um there is a talk about the motivation <laughs> or how you had to be convinced of it to, to write this book. Can you mention yeah. about that? What, what was, okay, maybe you had to be convinced, right? But yeah. once you agreed to it, how do you move on? How, how do you, what was your take on this book? Um, well, I, I, I don't remember whether I mentioned this part of it in the, in the, in the, in the preface or not, but I was reluctant at first to do the book. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's how it begins. Um, I thought that it would come off as either whiny or arrogant. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to do a book that did either of those things. So Jack Martin said, well, look, okay, think it over some more. But in the meantime, will you allow yourself to be interviewed at a conference that was to take place in Boston in 2015? Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'll do that. And so I went and I did the interview and it was later published as part of a book, a chapter in a book that I didn't make myself. I just did the interview. But doing the interview persuaded me, as Jack Martin was pretty sure it would, <laughs> that, that it persuaded me that I could do the book that he wanted me to do in a way that would not make it seem whiny or arrogant. I hope that I accomplished that. Um, um, and so that that was, and, and then once I decided to do the book, you asked me um, somewhere along the line, um, what was the main motivation yeah. for doing? And, and it was just to, to have it finished and to, to bring my arguments that I've been making here and there and bits and pieces for many years, yeah, yeah. Um, to bring them all into one place, it's a, it's a, it's a coherent package. The way it stands, tell the story from start to end, yeah. and maybe not have to write on this topic anymore, <laughs> because I have written a lot on it. And every time that I've said to myself, "This is the last time I'm writing on this topic." <laughs> Then somebody comes up and wants me to do a chapter or something else, and I end up writing on it again. So I, I think maybe I've succeeded this time, except for little pieces here and there, maybe. But in the main, I'm finished with that chapter. I've, I've written what I have to say, and, and, and now I'm going to let it go and, and move on to other things. I don't know if I told you that I just finished a book manuscript, another contribution to the 
to the series in the uh, uh, Theory and History of Psychology, same series as the other book appeared. And it's on William Stone. Yeah. And it's Critical selected, personalism, right? Yeah. And as so, several pieces of his that I chose and translated, and most of the chapters in the book are uh, translated works of William Stern. Right. And so I feel like, and, but, but those two things, they, they do go together. You wondered at some point about Stern and, and statisticism, this, this idea that I, this word that I made up, I, I make up words along the way. Um, <laughs> Stern, Stern never used the word statisticism, at least nowhere that I've ever seen. But he made arguments that are consistent with my understanding of the problem of statisticism. Maybe I've already gone someplace where you want to go no, later no, that, in the interview. No, no, it's perfect, actually. I mean, that's, that's going to be, of course, the, the starter of, of what should be the main topics of our discussion, right? I think the word that, as you said, you, you define the concept which englobes what, what the book is about is, is statisticism, right? Statisticism. Yes. So uh, actually what, what you commented on, it was actually also basically the, the last question for this kind of introduction about yourself and the book, which okay. was that it becomes very clear and it, it's also mentioned in, in the book that, okay, you had written about this. This was your, I think the majority of your professional work as, as you, also related it in this interview, right? That you came across this, you started to investigate it, that you were publishing, uh, you were, I think, as you stated at one point, hopeful that, okay, uh, I think when you went to that conference in Germany, in West Germany, as you said, you were like, okay, now it's, it's moving on, right? <laughs> and you thought yeah. psychology will change, uh, everybody will pick up on this, uh, which I think it's, it's, a, it's a common feeling for a lot of scientists that, uh, or even maybe more hopeful on these times, but to say, okay, my paper or my ideas will catch on to, to everybody, yes. right? I, and I, I did think that, and I thought it would happen pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, yeah. 40 years later, right? And so. But, yeah, and, and now one specific question I had about this process of writing this book was, was it all putting it together and making sure it, it told a story or did you also have to maybe come up with a different example that you have to work something differently as you had done before? Was there any kind of uh, new thing that you said, okay, this has not worked before that well or maybe it was misunderstood or something? Was there anything like that? Yeah, yeah, there have been. I, I can't cite you necessarily chapter and verse right now, but mm -hmm. you know, it, one doesn't really want to literally publish the same words right. again and so you figure out new ways to say things new ways to organize ideas and i i like to think that as i've done this over the years the argument has gotten clearer and it's gotten sharper it's still the same argument so in that sense it's not new but the way it's being put forward the way it's being expressed the way it's being illustrated uh, uh is, is is a little bit different every time right and I, I i figure out um you know different ways of 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 saying these things and finding connections between things i've written and things that have been written by others including but not limited to william stern um 
before I wrote the book, that book, uh, I didn't really know about um, Fred Kurlinger's use of the um, troublesome paradox yep. expression that he used. And I discovered that in my research going into this book, it's like, of course, there it is again. Uh, and, and so that was new. I'd never written about that before, yeah. uh, except in the interview that I did with Jack Martin in 2015. I knew it by then, um, but I hadn't seen it before. And, and so that was, that, was, that was a new aspect of it. And I don't remember, uh, I think the first time I used the term statisticism Mm-hmm. in print was in a journal article that I did in 2010. If my memory is correct, that's the first time I used it. I had never used it before. Yeah. And it just, sometimes these words just come to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, of, of, I think we're all familiar with the isms, you know, the, this, this kind exactly. of thing. So it, it comes, uh, and, and one being, I think, a, a researcher or an academic, I think one instantly makes the connection. So, so I think, uh, Uh, the term, at least for me, it, it, I think I immediately knew what you were referring to when, when, I, when I read it, especially reading uh, all the context that you were introducing in the book. And I asked you that, that question just because as you read the book, you have these examples and this knowledge of, you know, psychologists and individuals who had said this or that and made certain arguments. Uh, and you, In this book, it, there is like counter argument for all of them about why this might not be accurate as uh, this, uh, some people thought uh, they were uh, yeah. when they wrote that. So uh, one starts to think, okay, how did you, how were you able to have all these counter evidence or evidence on, on your arguments uh, in, in such a concrete way? So uh, I think we will discuss some of that uh, during the interview. Okay. And, and that's why I had that first question like, okay. Uh, Because if you had, if you knew, let's say, uh, if this was a new topic for you in your career, I think it would have been impossible to have this kind of thorough collection of, of oh, yeah. uh, evidence, right? <laughs> oh, yes, I, I, I think so. This is the culmination of, well, decades of, right. of work and reading. And yeah, it's, um, and Some of it was newly discovered. For example, I wrote in the book about um, passages uh, in which um, Anne Anastasi, who's an author of a, a major differential psychology textbook, and went to like seven editions or eight editions over the course of the 20th century. Very, very influential. And how she where passages are in there where she actually lined herself up with Thorndike and with Munsterberg. And I hadn't known that. I, I knew that that must have been the case, but I didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with actual textual passages mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that, that show that. And um, uh, other, yeah, other aspects of how she, um, The several of prominent writers in differential psychology who, like Anastasi, um, uh, Kurt Pavlik in Hamburg of all places, um, and others were regarding Stern's 1911 book as the second or revised edition 
of the 1900 book. And he, he clearly, um, I wanted to show you this. I don't know if you can, if you can see it very clearly. Yeah, I could see it. Right there. This is the title page of a facsimile edition of Stern's 1911 book that was organized by Kirk Pavlik. And, yeah. and it talks about the, this, this book as Anstelle einer zweiten Auflage des Buches and then on the psychology of individual difference. So that means in place of mm. a second edition. Nevertheless, right. Kurt Pavlik and Ann Anastasi before him and Leona Tyler, who wrote a very influential uh, differential psychology book in the US in the 20th century, they all treat this book as the second edition of the 1900 book, despite the fact that he explicitly said, yeah, that's a cover, this yeah. is not, this, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So, no, this, I, I, I think uh, sorry, but the, the, the context of this, uh, as we have already hinted, uh, I think uh, a few times, it's, it's, it's part of the point, I think, right? Part, part of that second part of the title of the book, as I mentioned, right? In Persistent Dismissal of its Critics. Uh, I think we, we can address this specifically as we go through this, these topics, because I think, for example, I was just thinking with what you were saying that uh, I think nothing explains better that uh, uh, second part of the title uh, as you having to cite also arguments or defending yourself and citing papers from uh, three years ago. Why now? I could say, but <laughs> 2018, you know, like where these ideas that you are. Uh, offering uh, yeah, counter arguments to or, or providing evidence of, of, of what uh, of what you're stating is, is uh, what applies uh, then yeah okay it's obvious that the, the the problem is still there the misconceptions are still there right so, so I think that's part of the discussion but maybe uh, uh, professor it's good to to then name or, or we already named it or define the the topic uh, that we're talking about, which is, as you call, statisticism. Can you offer yeah. a, a, a brief description of what uh, this means? Yeah, I would characterize it in my own words, and I think I, I use words very close to this in that 2010 article, the, the um, unshakable belief <laughs> that psychologists have that statistical analyses can uncover the most important truths about human behavior. Right. Um, and I, I quote in the book, and I'll read it again here, a British historian by the name of Henry Thomas Buckle, mm -hmm. uh, who published a book and it was a, a history of uh, um, civilization in England. And there's a quote in that book where Buckle writes, from carefully compiled statistical facts, more may be learned about the moral nature of man than can be gathered from all the accumulated experiences of the preceding ages, like back to Socrates and Plato <laughs> and right? This is a, now, when you have that much faith in statistics, and statistical knowledge, you have been infected by statisticism. And that is the clearest expression of it that I know how to give. All right. Well, let, let me, 
let me quote uh i will uh, uh repeat uh, the the definition that is given in the foreword for by your colleague about statisticism just so just so it's clear to everybody what okay. we're talking about because i think that's the point right we need conceptual clarity about what we're discussing because maybe maybe let's i say maybe i think you will say most definitely but uh psychologists don't always put enough time or effort into this because maybe they have been taught that there is more to be done about uh, doing the technical parts of the of the science let's say but okay yeah this is the the quote statisticism is the fact that based on descriptive or inferential statistical analysis of aggregate aggregated data i think that's one of the the, the main things from many yes. individuals one cannot claim any knowledge about individual persons or how they might react to the variables and context of psychological research as reported and generalized, right? So it's basically what you said. Once you work with aggregated data about individuals, basically you are there <laughs> and you cannot yeah. uh, make claims, right, of knowledge about a specific individual. Is, is this... Uh, that's, oh, yes, right? yes, that's that's very clear. Now, the passage that you actually read might have been from the foreword. Yes, that's that was written by Jack Martin, not yes. by me. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, but it, he he makes the point. He makes it validly. Um, would you say, for example, that uh, will you kind of shift around a bit what uh, how it is in the foreword and how you conceive it? Oh no, I say he he it, what he wrote there is accurate. Mm. Um, I, 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 what I gave you was a more general characterization right. of statisticism and what Jack Martin is writing about is the way in which statisticism get surfaces or appears in right. mainstream psychological research. Um, but the point is exactly the same and, um, and it is a valid point and, uh, yeah um is that clear enough or should i, I no i think i think it, it is uh, clear but uh, the, the next question because, say, because i think it's good right now to to talk about uh, about this let's say in general where we could say of the of, of what it of what it is uh, and one of the general questions uh, i have one of the first one is okay what does this mean or what is the impact of this in contemporary psychology. So we have already said a bit about it, uh, but what does this mean? What, what does this kind of uh, perception or, or misperception or misconception uh, causes for psychology as a science? Well, what it has done is it has led to the disappearance of psychology, but an unrecognized disappearance, if that's possible. What's happened is the field has been transformed from psychology into psychodemography. What is in place in mainstream thinking right now isn't psychology. It is a species of demography. We can call it psychodemography as a bow to the reality that many investigators are, in, are studying variables of a psychological nature, sensation, perception, judgment, emotion, et cetera. So there is that component to it. 
Nevertheless, the knowledge that is being generated through the research is knowledge of populations. Yeah. And that's what makes it demography. Right. And, and the, 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 the mistake is that if, well, if we have knowledge of populations, then we must have knowledge of the individuals within those populations. And that's where the, 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 the troublesome subtlety comes up, Roberto, because um, the, the, question, the, the test question is, I've got this aggregate knowledge. Um, let's say I've got a knowledge of a correlation uh, in a group of individuals for um, uh, uh, um, SAT scores and grade point averages. Mm-hmm. So if I know a person's SAT score, what can I claim to know about that person's grade point average on the basis of this correlation? And the answer is nothing. Person's SAT score is S, let's say. What's the grade point average? The only answer that a person in possession of this statistical knowledge it can give that's valid is I don't know. Okay, forget that first person. Let's go to the second person. There's his SAT score or her SAT score. What's his or her grade point average? Answer, I don't know. Third person, here's that person's SAT score. What's his or her grade point average? I don't know. And so you got 100 people and when the question is posed 100 discrete times, the answer every time is, I don't know. So actually, and it is literally true that the knowledge of what is true at the population level, the correlation, is knowledge about no one. <laughs> now, this is, this is where I think mainstream psychologists get lost. In, oh, that, that, that can't be. But go through the exercise, just like I did a moment ago. Do it for yourself. And when you ask about 100 different individuals, and the answer is, I don't know, 100 different times, I think you see pretty clearly that you have knowledge of no one. Yeah. Now, you can go back and examine the SAT score for an individual and see how, well, how, how the standard score on, on the um, the SAT score lines up with the standard score and the grade point average. So, and it may be that uh, the relationship is modest, uh, close relationship, and there's a, a modest correlation. So those things match up. But the point is, you don't know that until you go back and look. There will be some people all, uh, often in a group or in an aggregate for whom the average turns out to be true for that individual. But you never know that from the average alone. You have to go back and look. Well, the fact that you have to go back and look means that the aggregate data is not answering your question at the level of the individual. And that's true for every individual. And that's what makes it knowledge of no one. Now, that doesn't make it worthless knowledge. The claim here is not that demography is worthless. 
or that demography is bad science. Demography can be conducted in a very rigorous way and be good science. The question is, is it a psychological science? And I don't see how any discipline can claim to be a psychological science that officially and knowingly has nothing to say about individuals. Yeah. Now, now because of all of this you explain, I think one of the points uh, of, of, of the book is precisely, uh, as you mentioned before, as let's say at least one person who, who defined this as, okay, I, I, this whole topic could be just a troublesome paradox, right, Caroline? Yeah, right. <laughs> you clearly start off and say, no. <laughs> and, then, and then you have like five more or, or more uh, psychologists, very high profile psychologists who, discuss, let's say, discussed this, uh, rejected each yeah. other. And it seems that what prevailed is not what you just explained, but basically the opposite, right? That were aggregated data and statistical analysis on this and then tr making claims out of this uh, to make claims on, on what the individual psychology or the psychology of an individual uh, can be or is, uh, that, that's where the problem begins. So the point is clear, right? That this is not something trivial. This has implications for what psychology has been doing and what it hopes to, to, to be doing or not. I certainly think so, Roberto. And um, as you saw in the book, I have to address myself to that other um, problematic concept in psychology, problematic because it's misunderstood, and that is probability. Um, because people will say, well, I can make a probabilistic knowledge claim about this individual. And now we have to examine the nature of probabilistic claims. And, um, it, I, I wrote about this at length in the book, I'm sure you know, mm -hmm. and, and I can go on, uh, talk more about it if, if, if desired, but the bottom line is it doesn't hold up. Right. When the probabilistic knowledge is based on analyses of aggregates, um, you cannot make a valid claim to knowledge about the probability of an individual um, because their, their probabilistic knowledge about aggregates is knowledge of the proportion of people in a population that will conform to some criterion, whatever that happens to be. And whether this person in the population will conform to that criterion is something on which the available knowledge is silent doesn't have anything to say. Um, you can, as I point out in the book, it is possible to secure probabilistic knowledge about individuals. And the way in which you do that is you make multiple observations of the same individual. Now you have a database that which, which you can use to make valid probabilistic statements about individuals, but in population level research, that's not what's done. Right. The multiple observations come from discrete observations of many different individuals and not many observations of the same individual. And psychologists have get, gotten very comfortable in the belief that these are just two different means to the same end. Right. And they clearly are not two different means to the same end. They're two different means to very different ends. 
And one of them uh, could be relevant to psychology. My insistence is that the other is not. Right. Well, it's not irrelevant. And again, that's also addressed in the last chapter of the book. But it can serve only as the source of hypotheses that might in turn be tested about individuals. The, the research itself is not a test of those hypotheses. Yeah. Definitely, I, I think, uh, you know, th th that's what I was uh, sharing to you, my, my experience of reading this book, because you have these very clear concepts, ideas, like what, what, imagine when a studying of psychology or a practitioner, anybody, let's say, like myself or around uh, that, that, starts reading, okay, knowledge of no one and, <laughs> and starts yeah. to pick up on these uh, philosophical concepts or ideas or basically just critical thinking about what we're doing um mm -hmm. yeah i think it's very uh, to me it was not a surprise that kind of uh, the, the world as you see it starts shattering a bit in terms of what you you have been trained to do or what you thought you knew but it, and then some lines are finer than others right and for example what you just explained which was precisely the next thing i was going to ask you is that okay <laughs> at one point you could say the, or I, I felt uh, like, okay, I, I know I have the notion that I know I should always be careful when interpreting statistics and I should not always say this or that just based on a statistical test, etc. Right? Right. Uh, right. But you go deep into this to say, okay, okay, this is, this is not just something, a misreporting thing or something. It, it really has a, a deep meaning on what you're doing as a scientist and and to me i think the the point about explaining uh the yeah what probabilistic knowledge is and the difference you make between subjective claim of, of knowledge which is as i understand of course that what you recommend everybody to do if they are do or what you know everybody should be doing when they are treating uh results from aggregated data right that you can always say okay if i have data from 50 people and uh, 50 said red and and or I mean for 40 say said red and the other 10 said blue then I might strongly believe that the next person I ask might say <laughs> red right <laughs> or not blue yeah. you can have yeah. that kind of subjective beliefs that that's okay it's, it's probabilistic uh, it's subjective but I right. cannot say oh yeah this next person or any person in that group will be read because that there is no connection there is is that a correct example also not only you can't you say this person will be read but nor can you say i know that the probability for this next person being <laughs> right. read is 0. 0.8 yeah. no it isn't it's one or zero <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's True. never 0. 0.8 yeah. you can say uh things like, and I have had this say to me as though it's, it's, it's an answer to the criticism. Well, Lamiel, if you were a betting person, <laughs> what would you, what would you bet? And that's, you know, the Russian roulette example. That All I right. Yeah. It's, in the, the book. it's the same thing. I mean, when I pull that trigger, a, a bullet's coming out of there or it isn't, and there's no point eight about it. Uh, <laughs> And if you think there is, well, good luck. Um, but we do make, um, in, in other circumstances, and we hear it a lot now because of COVID, well, my risk of getting the disease is very low. No, <laughs> partner, your risk is one or zero. 
And if you do get it, it's not gonna be just one one thousandth of you that gets it. Your whole body is, is gonna get it. You're either gonna have it or you're not gonna have it. And if you say, well, you know, only one in 1,000 people in my category, and then you define that category however you want, gets it, yeah, that's right, but you might be the one. I mean, um, now people do think this way all the time. They use statistical knowledge of populations as a way of judging how strongly they should hold a belief about something. And that's, right. there's nothing technically wrong with that. Subjectivism is a view of statistical knowledge that's been around for a long time. It's, it's the basis of Bayesian uh, statistical thinking. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's recognized, but we have to be careful about what we say. And you, 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 if you're going to adopt a subjectivist view, then use language that makes it clear that that's what you're doing. And don't say things like, I know probability is 0.8 that this no you don't know that yeah. so that was the first part of the conversation with professor james lamiel i hope you got to enjoy it as much as i did and if you would like to see the uncut version of this conversation you can find that in my podcast and you can find the link also in the description below if you prefer to also read about it you can see a blog that i have written for it which will also be in the district in the description and of course you should wait uh, to see the next parts of this conversation and you will have the videos of coming soon so basically for all of these videos all of these blogs all the products that relate to this content and my interview with professor lamiel just stay in touch uh, keep monitoring the channels and you will see them soon but more importantly i would really really like to know what you thought about this first part if you have any thoughts or ideas, just put them in the comment. And of course, you can remember, you can follow me on social media. You can follow, follow me on any of the platforms. And it will really, really help me greatly to, to keep producing this kind of content, to know if uh, what kind of interest you, you guys have on behavioral science or psychology specifically. So just let me know. And yeah, thank you for watching this video.